You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, or the California Board of Regents. Welcome back to the show. My guest in this segment is Bernadette Bowden-Albala, Director and Founding Dean of the Program in Public Health and Professor of the Department of Population, Health and Disease Prevention and Department Epidemiology at the Samuele College of Health Sciences at UC Irvine. In this interview, we have the benefit of her applied experience providing much needed insight about the COVID pandemic. Internationally recognized in the social epidemiology of stroke and cardiovascular disease, Dr. Bowden-Albala designs strategies for prevention and preparedness. She worked with New York City's Dominican community to demonstrate that a culturally tailored, skills-based approach helped stroke patients significantly lower their blood pressure one year later translating into a nearly 40% reduction in the risk of having another stroke. She's co-created courses with UNICEF and the United Nations World Food Program focused on Ebola and polio and new systems to ensure equitable access to healthy foods. In addition, Bernadette Bowden-Albala helped develop the Cross-Continental Masters in Public Health a one-year program that combines classroom learning, collaborative research with faculty mentors, and public health practice experience across three continents. A professor of public health, neurology, and dentistry at New York University, she served then as interim chair of the Department of Epidemiology. Her other prior appointments before joining UCI in July of 2019 include the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health, College of Global Public Health, Department of Neurology at Langone School of Medicine, Department of Epidemiology, College of Dentistry, New York University, the Department of Health and Evidence and Policy, the Department of Neurology, the Institute of Translational Epidemiology at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Then the Department of Neurology at Mailman School Public Health Center for the Study of Health Inequalities at Columbia University. She completed her Bachelor's of Arts in Anthropology at Queens College, her Master's in Public Health and Tropical Medicine, at PhD in Sociomedical Science at Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. We are so glad to have her set aside time from her hugely busy calendar. Welcome to Ask a Neighbor, Dean Bowden-Albala. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here and to talk with you about this really important topic. Thank you. And I have to take pause. I'm thinking, what a world of difference since only a month ago that I hosted Orange County Health Agency pediatric epidemiologist, Dr. Michelle Chung, that so much not only is has developed, but so much is learned and so many protocols have been changing and stepping up. And I hope we can cover that from your public health perspective. Well, first, Dean Bowden-Albala, how are you doing? 
How, and how is it being here in Southern California while former colleagues of yours battle in the COVID epicenter in New York City? Yeah, I, I, thank you. Um, you know, it's tough. It's, um, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm really happy to be here at UCI in beautiful Southern sunny California. And um, I've had, I've been here since July and I've had, you know, tremendous opportunity to meet really interesting people, both at the university um, and uh, throughout the community, um, you know, of Irvine and Newport Beach, Laguna. It's really been um, very, very nice. And, and everyone has been very welcoming. You know, I leave my mom uh, back in New York and uh, she's actually uh, self-isolating with her uh, 99-year-old sister. And um, I speak daily to her and uh, daily to colleagues from New York City, where I basically spent my entire um, public health career. Um, you know, one of the, the things I'm most proud of uh, in Orange County and in California is that um, we actually uh, responded very early and very quickly to this threat. And uh, we went into shelter basically March 12th. Um, at least at UCI, with the county following and the state following, you know, days later, and we have been truly social distancing, and that's making a huge difference. In New York, they didn't respond as quickly, and now, of course, they have terrible things. It's a very grim setting in New York. There's a lot of people. It's a very dense city, um, and, you know, the, we always knew, I think everybody knew that any kind of major infectious uh, epidemic or pandemic as we have now is, is going to hit more dense, highly populated areas worse. And uh, it really has hit very, very hard. And really, though, it's been in New York City, and I know we'll talk about this a little bit later, that we see this whole issue of um, race ethnic disparities really unveiling. We didn't see that in other countries. And it's really shocking. But I am trying to provide strength and wisdom to my friends in New York, and they're doing the same with us. And, um, you know, it's good to have that communication. So you talked about the response from the campus, then the state, and then the county. I'd like to just have you mention what kind of leadership does the World Health Organization, what meaningful leadership does it offer, what its connection is with local public health management? You know, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, so I think the World Health Organization is there to do, um, you know, rapid investigation and to provide overall guidance, not just to the United States, but to countries throughout the world. They have a lot of expertise in working um, in very different settings. So rural versus urban, um, dense, large uh, city states versus really um, suburban and, as I said, rural. Um, and they, they're, you know, using an evidence base that oftentimes the first on the scene. Mm -hmm. um, they send in their scientists, their epidemiologists. They really have some of the, I think, earliest knowledge about anything that emerges. So how do we interact with WHO as a local county or as a state or even as a country? I think that we work with them in trying to understand their guidance. Um, sometimes we provide expertise as well. But, but I think we take the larger picture 
and we have to translate it to what's actually happening where we are. This has been a very interesting epidemic or now pandemic. China uh, is a very different place than we are, extremely dense, very, very urban. South Korea, Italy, Spain, now the U.S. Um, we haven't really, people haven't really talked about Africa. And it's, it's interesting because it's just slowly emerging now in Africa. So the World Health Organization would provide guidance and probably have some unique experiences for us locally. But I do think at the end of the day, we have to take that guidance and we have to translate that into sort of the local setting and how what's happening or emerging locally. And for us, that's really here in Orange County. With less than 1% of Californians being tested, Dr. Bowden Albala, how do you recommend that public officials manage this ordeal? Yeah, that's a good question. Certainly, um, testing has really been a disaster, and it's, it's been a disaster at the national level. Um, and, you know, I think that we, we probably should have, as a country, have worked a little bit more with the World Health Organization when things started to emerge here and maybe taken some of their advice and on testing and used some of their diagnostic tests early because I know we were trying to get up to speed, but mm -hmm. that really took a long time. Um, and so now we are left, especially here in California, with, with very, very few people having been tested. And the problem with testing, there's so many problems with testing. Okay, um, so go ahead. <laughs> we need, uh, but the first overall picture is we don't have any sense yet of how many people have been exposed to this virus right. and were, either had mild symptoms or had or, or were asymptomatic, okay? And so not knowing that, leaves us kind of helpless in the sense that if that when we try to predict everything, how we're going to get out of this, when do we stop, you know, the, the significant sort of shelter in place, when do we get back to some normality, in order to understand when that can occur, we have to really understand how COVID-19 has gone into our communities. And so you can test to see one who has COVID-19 and who hasn't. Um, and, and in New York, the testing numbers are so much greater in terms of people having access to that. And so that's the first thing, who's sick and who's not. And among those that are sick, how many people are symptomatic, how many people need hospitalization, and how many people are asymptomatic. So I'm sure you saw in the news overnight, um, they went and tested the entire crew of that Navy ship um, where there was the whole firing of the- of the, the Roosevelt. Yeah. Yes. And um, the data from the testing, you know, demonstrated that 60% of the ship was, I believe, asymptomatic. Um, there's some other work out of New York City um, in a small series of women who were pregnant and delivering. Again, 13% of women in that, in that small study were COVID positive, but asymptomatic. Only 2% were symptomatic. And so the question really is, 
how do we make estimates about who's right. had the virus and who I'm, hasn't? And the reason I was just going to say, um, the reason, Claudia, that we need to know that is because that helps us to understand how hard or, or, or not that this COVID will really hit for us Orange County. And so what that, what that means is that, you know, we're talking about something called herd immunity, right? right so right. it's the immunity of the underlying population um, that protects people that don't have the immunity from lessening the, the spread of disease, from getting that disease. So if you had, if, if around you in a circle were six people, okay, and every one of those people had had COVID, okay, and, um, and you, you didn't, you wouldn't get it because nobody there would be introducing you to it if they had had it, I should say, and recovered from it. Um, and so we need to understand what proportion, and there's a big difference between right. five or eight or 10% of the community having had the disease, having made antibodies and, and potentially protecting you from that versus 95%. Um, you know, vaccines give us herd immunity at about 95 or 98%. And that means that we are assured that there's a very low likelihood of getting it. So to make a prediction about when we can go back to normal, we have to have a sense of the, of the, the spread in the community. And um, and so we can do that in a couple of ways, right? We can test everybody right now to see if they've had COVID, okay? Right. And that would be the kind of what we would call a PCR diagnostic test, meaning you have active virus or you don't have active virus. Right. Or we could do what's now coming out as antibody testing, right? And what that tells you, that does not tell you if you have active virus. And what that tells you is if you've had it, if you've been exposed, if you've had that virus already, and it tells you that because you start making antibodies to the virus, two kinds of antibodies. And what happens with those antibodies is that it gives us a sense of not only did you have it, but when did you have it? So early, I mean, so six weeks ago versus maybe, you know, two months ago or something like that. So what we recommend is as soon as we can get our antibody tests up to speed, and there's a lot of controversy about antibody testing, because the problem, one of the problems at least, with COVID-19 is that it is a coronavirus, and the most common coronavirus is the common cold. Mm. And so what we would want to make sure of is that we don't have what we would call cross-reactivity. And so, in other words, the, the antibody test picks up that you've had a cold and says that you've had COVID-19. We don't want that. So and that's so where those false, want, po the false negatives are false, false positive or false negative? So a false positive would be if you never had coronavirus, but you've had a common cold Correct. and the antibody okay. test picks that up. And a false negative would be that the, that the test doesn't pick up the titers at all. Yeah. And so you've had it, but maybe your titers were low. It doesn't pick it up. And so people think that you're still, that you have no immunity to it. And, and just one other problem with all of this testing is the other unknown is we don't know if this is going to end up more like influenza, where it comes back every year, 
or right. if it's going to provide a lifelong immunity like polio, for example, right? Right, and right. So, and it is looking, Claudia, a little bit more like it's probably going to be like influenza. Um, and that means that people, it looks like there have been cases now that people have been reinfected. But the data is really out on that, right? Because right. what we're, everyone's trying to do is respond to the crisis at hand, getting people healthy, protecting them from bad outcomes, like going into an uh, intensive care unit, like being put on a ventilator and like death. And so the focus has been treatment, but at the same time, public health needs to make sure that we're doing everything that we can because we're really the forecasters of tomorrow, right? We're the people that need to have a sense of what, is this gonna hit again? When is this gonna hit? Is this one surge and then we don't see anything for a year or ever again? Or, or is there gonna be multiple surges? And so we need all of this information to try to help to make predictions. So the, this, this testing, it's a driver of diagnostics in time, it's a driver of surveilling, of contact tracing, and then they're talking at the recent White House, at, the, at this taping, the, the White House task force talking about sentinel testing, and then they're right. talking about moving from, we're not in phase one yet, but and then how would that would look, and then how it would look to phase two. So I don't know, I guess my general question of wrapping this all up is, what with your public health season experience, are you concerned about so little data to drive all of these initiatives going forward? Yeah, I am, I am very concerned that we don't have enough data. We didn't even have enough data to really predict when surge was coming and if it is coming or what is that looking like. We don't have enough data to really say, hey, we're going when can we be safe enough to get out? But the good news is that the antibody testing is getting better. And I think we are within weeks of having some very good antibody testing kits. And I have to say that we've got some really great folks at uh, University California, Irvine, who have devoted their entire lives to sort of immunological research and testing and virology. And they are among, you know, re, uh, people renowned, national, internationally renowned experts. And so we will begin surveillance in a number of different ways in collaboration with the Orange County Healthcare Agency. And I think that that's going to start within a week to 10 days. And so, Yes, I was, just, I was just going to say that I was fortunate enough to have had the opportunity to interview the author for the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine last week, and he talked about the resources in CIRM's research were able yeah. to get, get some of this going right away. I just want to mention, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Dr. Bernadette Bowden Albala, Director and Founding Dean of the Program of Public Health and Professor at the Department of Population Health and Disease Prevention and the Department of Epidemiology at UC Irvine's Samuele College of Health Sciences. We're talking about the testing is now the antibodies, this is a blood draw, but the saliva is picking up other indicators, correct? 
Yeah, and so the saliva is really, we are, we're, we're not, the saliva, I think, has a lot of problems still as a test oh. is only being used in real emergency settings. Okay, because I, I think it, it, there was supposed to be the benefit of it being a more remotely administered kind of test, like drive-by. Absolutely. That's drive right. And I think, you know, we're, we're very, so Claudia, absolutely. We're very, very concerned about, you know, the, the, the repeated exposure that our healthcare workers are getting through testing right now to do the, um, the PCR, the COVID diagnostic test. It's a swab. It goes all the way up your nose. It is not comfortable, but it is important to do, similar to what we would do for influenza. Um, and it's wonderful that they, that they have come out with a saliva test. They are still testing that. You know, they're trying to launch that, and uh, it's very exciting. Um, but it is not really publicly available yet. But we are really looking forward to that happening because that will allow us to do a lot more testing. And that's what we really need. You know, um, I think that in a community as large as we are um, in Orange County, three plus million people, the optimum number of tests per day How many? should be something on the order, right, you know, to deal with something like this, something on the order of 5,000. And we are not near that, no, but we, we aren't. are getting, no, yesterday we had 429 uh, tests done by, uh, I think, the public health labs. Um, but we have about 3,000 uh, tests that we can, um, you know, that we, are, that we actively are able to do very quickly if we had to over the next couple of days. And testing is, a, it's all about one, having to get tested. So making that appointment with your doctor and getting the okay to have testing, because we still want to have testing done in people who have symptoms, right? Right. Um, we, and then it is also about, we've had shortages of swabs. We've had shortages of reagents. Um, and so it's just, you know, every time we think we're moving forward, I don't just mean we here in Orange County, I mean across the Nationally. country. Mm -hmm. Every time we think we're moving forward, there's a day in which we have a backlog and, you know, we, have, we get reduced, our productivity gets reduced by about 30%. So this is really frustrating. So, um, so hopefully the saliva will be introduced quickly for, for use everywhere and we can move that forward. And is there like a bit of a cost benefit that saliva might be a, a, a bit lesser expense to collect and process? Um, you know, it may be a little bit less expensive. It, it'll take less time to, um, it, certainly to collect. Okay. Um, but, you know, I, I don't have all the information about processing See, right that's, now. See, that's um, telling, right? There's so much to, yeah. to, to know. Oh, so um, I guess... I briefly, I lay at your feet. I, I'm, I want you to evaluate how you feel like the Orange County Health Agency, their board of supervisors are managing this pandemic locally. Really, I want you to, and what has your role been as a public health academic professional in contributing what OC Health Agency has been doing? Yeah, so that's a great question. And, you know, the first question you asked me today was, you know, what was our sort of role with WHO? Right. Does WHO have connection to local? And I think of, of really the recent diseases that of modern time 
this one is particularly, uh, I think, particularly needs to be focused on what's happening locally. Um, and so more, more than ever, the local health agencies play a role because the, the disease is, you know, it's unveiling itself a little bit different depending upon, again, if you're a large city, if you're a rural area, and a part of that's access, but, but part of it is also this whole issue of social distancing and spread. And so I, I'm going to say only really positive things about the Orange County Health Agency. Uh, we have been collaborative even before this. Um, I, I, they, they welcomed me uh, when I came to um, UCI and um, Nicole Quick, who is the health officer, you know, said, we want to work with you and we really want to work in collaboration to work together. And, um, you know, it's not easy being a local health department because they have to report up to the state and then there's federal mandates. But it's not it's not an easy, you know, to manage. But um, I have to say, we have been working with Nicole and her group on um, a number of things really for weeks to months. And so some of the things that we've rounded up our expertise at, you know, in public health and then throughout the university to work on things like one, surge. When is this surging? What are the models here locally? How is that different than, say, a, a national model or a, a model for a city like Los Angeles? Um, and so we've been sharing data and looking at this and meeting really extremely frequently, day-to-day -day updates all the time on surge. We're working with them on surveillance. We're gonna we're working with them to to do surveillance throughout the county using bloods from clinics, de-identified bloods, just to give us a sense of what the, the prevalence of COVID-19 looks like around the county. And uh, Matt Zahn, who is their uh, infectious yeah. disease uh, specialist, has been really tremendous in working on this issue of surveillance. We're working with them on forecasting. What does this look like? How do we think about social distancing? We're working with them. Susan Wong, who is a wonderful infectious disease epidemiologist at the Medical Center, who works with us in public health is, do, is going to start doing really tremendous work and has been, I think, already in nursing homes, working again with Orange County Healthcare Agency. They're interested in um, interventions that we can do, right? So what can we do? This whole issue of preparedness, the most important thing that you talked about, how everything's changing in this, and it is true. Protocols are changing daily, PPE, everything is changing. But one of the things that has remained constant is hand washing, the importance of hand washing and vigilance. And I know you're laughing, but... No, no, no. I'm saying hand washing is the analog of, of 2020 medicine, right? It's, it's, that's exactly it's a right. That's but exactly right. Just being the journalist role here. I wanted to, though, call out that I'm sure the health agency could do more had they a more invigorated leadership style from our Orange County Board of Supervisors who, in public meetings, aren't that keen about transparency, aren't that curious about what are some choices and what are better practices and that kind of thing. So it's sort of like, here's a health entity 
that has a ceiling with the kind of board of supervisor leadership. And, and when I compare them to what's going on in LA, what I compare with the governor's office, I just feel like we, our 3.3 million population, we're entitled to a little bit better of that. But that's on me to say that I know you've got to keep your collaborative best form with the, the public office holders. So I'll, I'll put that on me to say that. So let's, let's talk about, I, this is one of the many moments I've been waiting for with you is let's talk about the trends. And I'm, we only know what's reported. We're never going to know what wasn't reported. So first, you know, the commentary was this COVID is an affluent person's disease. It's somebody came back from their ski trip in the Alps. Somebody went to the biogenetic meeting in Boston, and then they flew and spread it around. But but now we are seeing a much different incidence of COVID, both with the cases and the actual death rates. So let's let's have you talk about now we're it's becoming disaggregated, and even that's a political call: is how willing different states are going to disaggregate the data about the death rates. In and let's talk about that first, and then talk about what this is signaling about the way our public health performs over generations to get us to this kind of disparity. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is absolutely outrageous that we are seeing this unveiling of uh, increased death and disease, morbidity and mortality among um, underserved minority populations among African Americans, among Latinx populations, among the poor. And, you know, shame, shame on us throughout the United States, shame on us. This is an infectious disease, not a chronic disease. We should not be seeing these kinds of huge disparities. Um, and we are seeing them. And, um, it's it it really is unbelievable. So so the question is what why are we seeing them? And and to your point, is this a symptom of a broken down um, you know healthcare system? And I would say probably yes. That's one issue. Access is one issue. Um, but everything about this disease in the United States, um, you know, has been problematic because there have been, or at least we're now seeing, you know, disadvantages always to underserved and poor populations. So let's take essential versus non-essential, right? Okay. So if you're non-essential, you're staying home and you're sheltering in place. And if you're essential, well, of course you're needed. And so we get that, um, you know, and we are, we say, you know, thank you to the firemen and thank you to EMS and thank you to the to all of the healthcare workers who are front line. But what we also need to say is thank you for putting yourselves on the line, essential workers who are unskilled laborers, janitorial, sanitation, um, you know, um, all of these other kinds of um, positions, you're out without protective gear, and you're seeing and serving the public, and you have to do it, because if you don't do it, the, your, your kids are not going to be fed. 
And so, so we have the second thing. So we have access before, before, have, yeah. I wanted, To the point about the central, I, I noticed it was a very early indicator and I don't think it was framed, but the fact that the traffic reports were reporting a heavy traffic, when we were starting to shelter in place, there still was heavy traffic backing up, commuting back in the evening to the Inland Empire. And we know who's living there. It's the essential workers, the underserved right. and uh, you know lower income homes that are more affordable out in the Inland Empire. So I thought that is a data point. We better start paying attention. That was very, very early. So on to the-, that, the that, That's right. So you were talking to a second point uh, about healthy food availability or? Oh yeah, so I, so, I just, wait, so I just want to say, so essential workers, that's an issue. Access, that's an issue. And then to, to talk about healthy food, I want to talk about what's emerging as really important risk factors yes. um, for, let's call it, poor prognostic outcomes. So for people that are having uh, breathing problems that need to be in the intensive care unit, for people that are dying, and even for people, um, to some extent, that are hospitalized. And so, you know, I think we saw in Italy that this was very much initially, at least the disease um, of the elderly. We saw that everybody in China, was it 98% of people in China who were hospitalized and on vents had multiple other comorbid conditions. And what's happening here is that we're seeing that what, is the, what are the most significant risk factors? Well, they are um, hypertension, they are diabetes, they are obesity, okay? And not necessarily when all is said and done, age is not gonna be as important. I, I, yes. I guarantee it, I'm seeing right. the numbers. That's getting so clear. Just what I, what, what we're going to call something like, it's called the metabolic syndrome, this constellation of these different kinds of risk factors. So, you know, again, um, blood pressure, uh, diabetes, obesity, and then some sort of lipid profile. And it's, it's kind of strange to say, why is this? How is this connected with, you know, this, this horrible viral syndrome? And we don't know fully, but one of the really? things we do know is that that metabolic syndrome is highly prevalent in African-Americans. It's highly prevalent in um, Latinx populations, and it's becoming more prevalent across the United States overall. In fact, data suggests that in the last decade, we've gone from 25% of all adults having this metabolic syndrome to 34%. And metabolic syndrome is, is, you know, has a lot to do with the, not only obviously physiology, but things like exercise and healthy eating and sort of a lot of lifestyle behaviors. So it's all coming together. One other factor? But, yeah, I want to, is exposure to environmental hazards too. Yes, and so we have, you know, I think we need to. That is a really excellent point. I think we need to really look at that. I mean, exposure to environmental hazards, you know, could obviously alter immune response, and we also know that in exposure to things that are exposure to discrimination, exposure mm. to um, work situations which are um, unhealthy, which people have no control over, that, that those things can also alter immune response and, and are connected with this whole metabolic syndrome. Wow. So, so all of this is panning out in a very interesting way. Um, and, um, you know, we, we have to be responsive. 
So one question I ask as, a, as someone who does a lot of work in the area is, can we be doing something besides just hand washing and face mask wearing and social distancing? Can we help folks that are at higher risk to try yes. to reduce that risk? So next year when COVID comes back again, that they are more physically prepared to handle that. Okay. And, um, and, and so that's a question that people haven't asked, but I think we need to ask. To listen to the entire interview, please go to my website, askaleader.com, for the UCI Public Health Program interview with Dr. Bowden Albala. We'll be right back after a short station break with Margarita Long, along with students Summer Pagodwan, Lori Sinanian, and another student involved. They're advocating for relief from their Irvine company leases. Stay put. They're doing impressive stuff. Welcome back to Ask a Neighbor. My guests in this segment are many. UCI Humanities Professor Margarita Long, along with students Summer Pagaduan, Lori Sinanian, along with another involved student who wishes to remain anonymous. Renters all adjacent to the UCI campus who are advocating for relief from their Irvine company leases while they're hunkering down with their parents elsewhere amidst the early closure of the UCI campus this 2019-20 academic year. With everyone's permission, I'll introduce each guest very briefly. First is Margarita, or Mimi Long, UCI professor of feminist theory and eco-documentary. Her latest project is a book entitled Care, Affect, Crack Up, Literature and Activism After Fukushima. Previous to her 2015 appointment at UC Irvine, she was a professor at UC Riverside, Brown University, and the SUNY system at Buffalo campus. She completed her Bachelor's of Arts in English at Amherst College and both her MA and PhD in East Asian Studies at Princeton. My next guest is Laura Sananyan, a graduating senior at UC Irvine with a major in English. She's a writer for Insight Magazine, a scriptwriter and anchorwoman for Anteater Television, an intern for the Newport Beach Film Festival, and the vice chair for the Student Center Board of Advisors. The next guest is Summer Pagaduan. She is a senior at UCI majoring in nursing science, currently an activist new to activism. And then we have another student who has asked to be anonymous, but will be participating with us here. Each of the students is sheltering in place in their parents' homes, a central matter in this interview. I want to welcome all of you to Ask a Neighbor, Margarita Long, Summer, Lori, and all. Hi, Claudia. Thanks for having us. Hello. Thanks for having us, Claudia. Thanks for having us, Claudia. Thank you. And first, I just want to give my hats off to local media that deserves our support. Our media partner, Voice of OC, Noah Biasiata, broke this story earlier this month. So to begin this interview, I want to ask all three of you students, how are you guys doing? Um, this is Lori Sinanian. I think that uh, after a while, you could get used to a lifestyle or anything that becomes 
repetitive in your life. But in this case, it's a pandemic. So there's a lot of uncertainty um, in the near and far future. So although uncertainty usually has a thrill to it, this time it's only anxiety inducing. Mm. Lori, Summer, how are you doing? Um, I think Lori pretty much explained how we're all feeling. Um, I mean, I don't, I guess I'll just speak on my behalf as well. But yeah, these times are unprecedented. And, you know, you just learn to take things day by day. And, you know, while humans, we're built to be so adaptable, you throw us into any situation, I feel like you can find a way to make do with it. But considering what a lot of UCI students or just all students statewide are going through at the moment with the stay-at-home orders, life has changed drastically. You know, I, just to name a few, you know, graduation is called off. You have to deal with your lease at the moment. And for me being a nursing student, I'm still, you know, on the edge on whether or not I'm going back into the clinical setting to do my clinical hours in order to get my degree in nursing. And trained to become a nurse or get my license to become a nurse. So there, there's a lot up in the air at the moment. And for me personally, you know, it's been something that I've adapted to. You learn to be patient, but I'm sure that there's a lot of students right now who are struggling with that. And our other student? Uh, yeah, hi. Uh, so yeah, I'm actually a little different. To clarify, I'm not uh, a renter. I'm just involved with the Student Lease Break Activism. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I guess my situation is a bit different because of that. Uh, I have, you know, some, some semblance of stability right now in my life because I've been at home anyways, and I shifted back, back and forth between my family home uh, and the, where I was lodged for school. But um, yeah, I kind of just, you know, t as they said, taking things day by day, I pretty much like had to figure out what I was going to do like for the summer. And now that those plans are canceled, sort of as far as things for, you know, career, but that's not as important as trying to like help people out who are currently struggling with even getting things as essential as their housing, you know, figured out. Um, so yeah, I mean, I can't, can't complain considering I'm in a much better place than a lot of people right now who well, are struggling with a lot of things. Well, I, I want to commend you for taking up this cause, even if your skin isn't quite as much in the game as your colleagues in this activism so it's i, I want for listeners really to understand that's a, a the magnanimity of your contributing at this point and i and i understand from the what background i do know about you that this this is what you do and you're you're being super intentional at this point well let's i want to talk with mimi and the students have you all talk briefly about the timeline all of this taking place very quickly uh, from we, taking us from when UCI started to change up the distancing policy to closing the campus. Can maybe Mimi go through sort of the dateline? So we knew we have an appreciation of how quickly the students needed to respond to some housing logistics on top of everything else. Yeah, I was really impressed by how quickly the students responded to Chancellor Gilman's um, March 10th that students should return home. Um, I got involved with the students on program today because I'm a member of an organization called uh, UCI Mutual Aid, which um, is an informal, non-hierarchical, non-profit, egalitarian, democratic, exactly as the, the name says, mutual aid mm -hmm. um, 
organization. And I, uh, I filled out the form. It was just a, a Google doc um, saying, I have resources. I can help um, anybody who needs advice or, uh, you know, I can, I can serve at this time of crisis. And I was put in touch with um, a couple of students who were being hit with this massive lease break fee. They and we're talking signed. about six to eight thousand dollars per student. Right. Well, they they were a, a room group of five students renting an apartment from the Irvine Corporation. Uh, rent was two thousand nine hundred thirty-five dollars, and they were being charged two months rent. So what I mean by they acted quickly is Chancellor Gilman gave the um, the order on March tenth. On that very day, they signed what was called an intention to vacate from uh, their Irvine Corporation wow. apartment. Wow. And according to the terms of their lease and the terms of that intention to vacate, they then owed Irvine Corporation $6,817, which represented two months rent plus $947 in prorated rent because they had paid to the end of March. And now they were going to have to, um, since they weren't able to find out that they needed to move out until March 10th, they had to pay through April 10th. So that's almost $7,000 that the five of them were responsible for. That's kind of when the timeline starts. And then Summer, I think you have a really good timeline that you've included in, in your correspondence with various news outlets. Maybe you want to go over what else happened after that? Uh, please do. Yeah, um, I'm just going to start from the very beginning. So before, I guess like I'll just start when the chancellor issued those stay-at-home orders or just to go home to your permanent residence for the spring quarter. That was issued March 10, like Mimi said. Mm-hmm. And you know, in response to that, many students, aside from just um, me and my other housemates, we decided, you know, we should probably make a decision on if we're going to continue paying rent until the full extent of our lease, or if we're going to go ahead and end the lease early. And so my household, we decided we were going to end our leases early, but not until towards the end of March. But, you know, before then, I was trying to start a petition to see how many other students were struggling with this same issue as well. And I did that somewhere between March 10 and March 19 when um, the governor issued that stay-at-home order officially. And um, I went home sometime before uh, finals week. And, you know, that's when I realized, you know, I'm not even in my apartment. I'm not using any of the amenities. I'm not, you know, accruing any sort of bill on utilities. So there's no point of me being there. And so, you know, that just brings up more of an urge to get, I don't know, just end the lease early, figure something out with Irvine Company, because with the governor issuing an order like this, you would think that they would do something about it, lower their lease fees, lower their rent, provide some Adjust somehow. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, the most that I did was just initiate this petition, not really knowing what political activism was going to ensue afterwards. And it just opened so many new doors. So I think once I started the petition, it easily got over 3,000 supporters. And by March 23rd, that's when the Irvine Company released this new program known as the Resident Assist Program. And this got a lot of criticism that maybe, you know, the other students can maybe talk about. And basically what this Resident Assist Program does is for the months of April and May, tenants only pay 50% of their rent and the rest of it is going to go towards later rent. And so with this program, you're not necessarily giving the students any sort of financial relief. You're just deferring when those payments are going to be made. But in the end, you're still going to be paying those costs in full. 
And, you know, that got a lot of criticism. I posted so many updates on the petition saying, you know, there's this program out there, but still it's not addressing the student's main concern, which is they simply can't afford these fees at this time. Many students are getting laid off from their jobs, myself included, and they're in a place where they have to face not only job insecurity, but they are facing financial insecurity. How are they going to pay rent when they don't even have the money to do so? And these students, you know, some of them are independent, but some of them are dependent on their parents. And for their parents who've gotten laid off from their jobs, now they're faced with this issue of having to pay for whatever their mortgage is or if they're paying rent for their own rent in their permanent residence. And on top of that, they have to pay their college students' rent in their off-campus housing. So it just creates a much bigger problem. And there definitely needs to be a statewide order at this time. So um, continuing with that, we have this resident assist program that was launched March 23rd. And you know, three days afterwards, March 26th, that's when the Irvine Company created this opportunity for students to fill out a Google form where they can voice their additional exceptions or considerations that the Irvine Company should be on the lookout for. And I, I also posted this on the petition as an update for students to take advantage of because this, was, this seemed like it was going to be a great opportunity for Irvine Company to be open to negotiation. And so I filled out the Google form addressing concerns such as there should be no sort of financial penalty for wanting to terminate your lease early. And by that, I mean either they let the students leave with absolutely no financial penalty, absolutely no fees being charged, or they reduce it. And I got a notification in my email. What date was that? that after um, the 26th? Sometime after the 26th. Okay. I know I filled it out the day of, but they probably got back to me within the next three days. Okay. And they said that they weren't able to accommodate my request. So I actually attended this virtual town hall meeting this past Friday with Irvine City Council member Farrah Khan. And she actually mentioned this Google form where Irvine Company allowed tenants to voice their additional exceptions or considerations. And she said, you know, I highly encourage you to fill out that form. And if you're unable to be accommodated, I want you to reach out to me. So Farrah Khan is actually advocating for these students to reach out to her in order to get some sort of representation against the Irvine Company. So that's However, Friday, April 17th, just a little timestamp for this pre-recorded interview. Yes. Okay. So Friday, April 17th is when Farrah Khan had that meeting and she addressed a lot of people's concerns, which is Irvine Company not accommodating anyone in terms of ending their lease early. So um, at this time, Irvine Company is doing absolutely nothing to change their policies to provide their tenants with financial relief. So let's go back to the original timeline. So I know I mentioned on March 26, Irvine Company created that Google form. So then March 27, Irvine City Council member Melissa Fox joined our cause. And we actually held an, a Zoom call meeting with her on that date. It was and how did she... How did she get involved? Just so I, I, we can appreciate the context there. Um, so Melissa Fox, she got involved by, well, this was a huge milestone for our campaign, so to okay. speak, because we didn't have anyone, I think, in a, a political position to kind of voice our concerns. So it was great that we got one of the city council members out of But how did league. she get in touch? How did that connection get made? So I think Mimi had a lot of... Okay. Um, Power. Yeah, and I think um, we reached out to Councilmember Fox because there had been uh, Irvine City Council meeting on March 24th to discuss a no evictions okay. resolution. 
And there had been chatter on the faculty listserv about the failure to pass an ordinance. What was passed was build a quote unquote toothless resolution as opposed to the actual kind of no evictions ordinance that had been passed by other cities in Orange County. Um, and Melissa Fox was on record as the only member of the council who had pushed forcefully for the actual ordinance, not the resolution. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so we reached out to her and she responded right away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so once we got in contact with uh, Melissa Fox, she joined our Zoom call meeting with me, some UCI students, as well as other professors, Mimi included, that are part of the organization on campus, UCI Mutual Aid. And we were hoping to discuss, you know, how can we get the Irvine company's attention in negotiating on their lease termination fees? And so her input was that we should take it to social media and somehow get a publication in newspaper articles. And by doing so, that's how we would get Irvine Company's attention because something that they really hate is bad reputation, bad publicity. So me and the other UCI students, what we were trying to do is we were going to take it to social media outlets like Twitter or just reach out to local newspapers such as the Voice of OC just to get some sort of publication out there. So that way people know that a company like Irvine Company is price gouging its tenants at this time. So with that, on April 10, that's when we got our very first publication by Voice of OC. And it was a really impactful article because it got over 2,000 shares on social media outlets such as Facebook. And through that article, I was, Noah, the author of that article, right. he reached out to me saying that there was an advocacy group known as the Young Invincibles that was trying to get in contact with someone from any student from UCI. So he connected me with someone from this advocacy group. And, you know, they're currently a part of our campaign, or rather, we're a part of their campaign, because their campaign is on a much bigger scale. What they're trying to do is they're trying to get Governor Newsom to issue a statewide order to provide students with this opportunity to leave their leases with no financial penalty. Another publication as well on April 14, the new university, our on-campus newspaper, mm -hmm published an article on the Irvine Company as well. Well, for those of you who just joined us, my guests are UCI Humanities Professor Margarita Long, along with UCI students Summer Pagaduan and Lori Sananian, and another one who will remain not identified. And we're talking about their collective action to break leases with the Irvine Company in the apartments adjacent to the UC Irvine campus. So that's the timeline that you've put down. Is there, is there more to add that before we talk about these really sizable institutions that you're contending with right now? Are we good on the, the time frame? Can, can I, I comment? Yes, please. Is this Lori? Sure. Yes, this is Lori. I just wanna uh, comment on uh, one of the timeline yes. that Summer mentioned. The rent assist program that she mentioned, it doesn't, I just want to reiterate for our audience that it doesn't have anything to do with the termination fee. It's just to assist those who are planning on living there. But when we're required by the governing Newsom to shelter back at home, then obviously a termination fee is what we are seeking, not a rent assist program. So the Google form that Irvine Company created and 
that Summer mentioned, there's one question that requires you to put the exact date for when you are able to pay back the monthly dues. But really? it felt like a, there is. <laughs> but it felt like a punishable asking since the thought that crossed our minds ever. So to be required to pay back the high costs, it, it, it feels unconscionable. Yeah, I agree. It's unconscionable, and I I think we really have to just pause for a moment. And this is Mimi. And think about the irony of this huge corporation telling students that they should fill out a Google form. And then when the most high profile member of our organization fills it out, her, the reply is, I'm sorry, we cannot accommodate you. Mm-hmm. Which, which is just another version of what the people at the Irvine Corporation have been telling students when they call, uh, sorry, no, it's business as usual. Yes, and I, I want to call out this the, this institution, the advantages, there's not, there's not just deep pockets in this corporation, but there is a monopoly on leaseholds in the city of Irvine and certainly strictly around the UC Irvine campus. So there is, in this moment, where we're all, the, the discussion is about sharing the burden of the COVID pandemic, that the deeper your pocket, the more, the, re- the further down you are able to reach to contribute to the community as a whole. So it's the aspect of what assets they have in reserve and the fact there's no other leasehold company they're competing with in the area. It's, it's really quite incredible. Now, well, that's, that's part of the backdrop as well as, now I'd like for you to talk about how the vice chancellor representing UC Irvine, vice chancellor of student affairs, Willie Banks, there have been a number of communications that come from him. There's, there's part of his languages, he speaks in the first person singular. I, I'm sort of picking up on that theme. He doesn't say what we, the university, are able to do for you, but he's also uh, off, he's not giving very specific kinds of of assistance to you all to act on, nor does he see the, the does he weigh in with the, the more formidable way of you to make your cases in a collective way. He's literally, he's talked about how individually all of you can deal with this, in this asymmetric relationship with the Irvine company. I, maybe you would uh, like to talk about the kinds of communications that you've had with the Vice Chancellor of Student Affairs, Willie Banks. Well, Summer, let's let you start. So, I don't know, my experience with the Chancellor Willie Banks is very brief. Really, my only experience communicating with him is through an email um, asking him if he would be willing to join our Zoom call that we were gonna have with Irvine City Council member Melissa Fox. And pretty much what he sent out was an email that he copied and pasted and sent to the other UCI student activists. So it was very impersonal. It was more so just we were in contact with the Irvine company regarding negotiating on your lease fees. But, you know, they say they're open to negotiation. However, they haven't come out with any sort of statement reflecting what they've said. To listen to the entire interview, please go to my website, askaleader.com, for the Release the Lease interview with Mimi and the students. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, I've tapped clergy and laity united for economic justice 
to cover what's breaking next week. For the additional productions that I'm unable to fit into the Tuesday broadcast, you can hear them all on my website, askaleader.com. For Earth Day this week, I will take stock with Shahir Masri. Next on these airwaves, DJ Ryan Lee cleansing your auditory palate with Vox Detox. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. We've got this.